Please sit comfortably. So, second day of session, and we're all settling in nicely. Uh, the title of this talk today is The Flow of Everyday Life. Um, it's a beginning, uh, it's a way into this talk. Um, I recently um, uh, met a, a colleague um, from Tasmania who did his PhD in what's called Marita therapy, which is a Japanese-based therapy, which is based on, very, very resonates very much with um, Zen and the psychiatrist, Dr. Marita, who um, developed it, came from a Zen background. And uh, it was developed to, uh, to treat what was referred to in Japanese as Shinkai Shitsu, which kind of translates as um, treating neurosis. Or neurosis is a bit of an old-fashioned word in in therapy now, but I think you know what I mean by it. It's kind of, it implies anxiety, um, obsessing, overthinking. Mm -hmm. And uh, he developed a method um, called Marita therapy for treating that condition. And you can see the similarities it has with what we do. So if you went on a if you did Marita therapy, you kind of do a retreat for a week and you're in a room by yourself and all you do is you lie on the bed. You do nothing. You just lie on the bed. You can sleep or you can be awake or whatever. You don't read books, don't talk to anyone. You just lie on a bed. And um, after about, I think, four or five days, you then start to transition into doing manual work gardening, usually something like that, um, mowing the lawn, maybe a bit of preparation of meals and things like that. And then eventually you transition into um, socialising with other people, you know, in a mindful kind of way. And apparently um, it's a very, quite a successful therapy um, for treating people with anxiety issues and obsessional issues in Japan and um, wanting to support him bringing it into Australia as well. But you can see the parallels with what we do. We don't sit on a bed, but we all, we're all still doing nothing for a lot of the time. But the thing to remember with session, it looks like we do a lot of stillness, you know, just sitting, which we do more than we do in, in everyday life. But it's integrated with action, and I want to emphasise the action part of, of Zen training in everyday life. But they're, they're in, they complement one another. But we do sitting and then we do walking and then we do sitting and then we do walking, stillness to action, stillness to action. And then in the breaks we do manual work. You know, and all of our eating, showering things, they're all actions. There's a lot of action here as well. And we need to look at how the process of doing session, where we do a lot of still sitting, actually complements action and flows into the action of our, our everyday life. Now, a life of action is a good life. Human beings were, were, were built to be active. 
you know, and to be doing things with their arms and legs and moving things around and, and reaching goals. We were, we were designed for that. And so there's nothing wrong with, um, with having a life that is full of um, actions, you know, that may be playful, maybe goal-directed towards work or career, but to be, to, to be involved in action um, is a Zen life. You may remember in one of Joko's readings um, that a Zen life is an active life. So even while this structured setting we have called session is very much to do with stillness, it's how it integrates, how it informs our active life, which is so much of our, our conscious waking day. And to give you an idea of the, the, the different kinds of ways we can be involved in activity, um, there can be activity can be done in, with an attitude and a, and a state of mind which is um, aggressive, wanting to reach the goals, irritable, frustrated when they're not met, um, timid, um, full of self-doubt can come into it or even apathy can come into it. But there's such a thing I think we all experience um, which is um, joyful anticipation in our life where we, we look forward to things and we're, we're involved in the, in the joy of actually doing. And uh, one of my old favourite um, pieces of literature um, is by um, Matsuo Basho, who was the haiku, famous um, Zen Japanese uh, haiku poet from his book, The Narrow Road to the Deep North. So here's a man who's meditated a lot of his life, been a Zen monk, and now he's a kind of retired, bit, bit older and just doing his own thing now. And just get a sense of the, the joyful anticipation of this. Days and months are travellers of eternity, so are the years that pass by. Those who steer a boat across the sea or drive a horse over the earth till they succumb to the weight of years, spend every minute of their lives travelling. There are a great number of ancients too who died on the road. I myself have long been tempted by the cloud-moving wind, filled with a strong desire to wander. And further on, in that, that anticipation of getting going, the God seemed to have possessed my soul and turned it inside out. And roadside images seemed to invite me from every corner so that it was impossible for me to stay idle at home. Mm -hmm. we, like, we like to get going, don't we? we? We like that anticipation. We like the being involved in, in the action of getting going. So you can, you can see with Basho, he's kind of like a horse champing at the bit. He wants, wants to get going there. Or like my dog, when I take my, my dog for a walk in the morning, he's been lying on the veranda all night and he comes out and he jumps up with joy and he does little spins in the air and so on, you know, to the joyful anticipation that we're going for a walk together. And it's that joyful... Um, anticipation of action, you know, an adventure and that joyful um, activity in our life is what we're moving towards um, and what we're informing by doing the sitting. The sitting might look very different, but it actually informs that, that 
that joyful activity that we're involved in in everyday life. Um, To look at what stops us from experiencing that, that joy of activity, you could look at it from a using Buddhist terms or you could use look at it using um, psychological, biological terms and I think they kind of resonate with one another. But without, when we think we've got a fight-flight mechanism and a freeze mechanism there, the fightiness is what drives us to go out and be ambitious and reach the goals, you know, and to, and to bring more resources in or to increase our status, whatever it might be. It's kind of like aggressive drive, you know, can be there. And if, if, there's an, if that's driving us in that aggressive fight-like way, we can also become very frustrated and irritable um, when we don't meet our goals, if we're, if we're mainly driven by that fight mechanism. Or we can be fearful and hesitant, timid, want to do things but scared to actually engage and then move away and that brings a sense of flatness or um, lack of joy in our life. We can go down that pathway as well or we go into the, we go into the freeze mode and the freeze mode is a kind of numbing out and, and people think when they're apathetic, oh, I'm just lazy but it's, I say to people in therapy, well, when you say you're lazy, that's a lazy way of understanding what you're doing. Behind laziness is fear and the fear goes down a pathway where it numbs us out and we lose energy. So from a psychological point of view there are all the different ways in which we can um, not joyfully engage in the goals in our life and the activity in our life. In Buddhism, we call it, I think there's a resonance in calling the fighting as kind of like grasping, fighting for something, and the aversion is like being being fearful, pushing away from something, and the um, the ignorance or apathy is that that frozen state. There's kind of a parallel or resonance in all of those different concepts, but they all get in the way. But um, if we we look at the outcome of all of that, it's kind of like what we would call neurosis is kind of like that's similar to what the Buddha called dukkha. Like it's just this dissatisfying stream of overthinking, worrying, going around in a loop, obsessing, that gets in the way of our just living our life as it is. Mm-hmm. And it leads to a kind of uh, it basically leads to overthinking, you know, or what we say in our practice principles, not just overthinking but self-centred thinking, the little loop going around all the, all the time sort of reinforces this sense of me and what about me, what about me and these actions and what I'm achieving or not achieving rather than just being in the flow of the action. But if you think of what an everyday uh, everyday life is, you know, in, in anyone's weekday work, 
you know, like for me, I get up in the morning, I sit, take the dog for a walk, um, make breakfast, eat breakfast, clean up after breakfast, have a shower, get dressed, go to work, people see, things to do, goes towards the end of the evening, come back home. That's, that's what makes up a human day of activity. And you're either one with that activity and you're just immersed in it and then there's a kind of a joyful engagement with it or it's you're kind of outside of it in some way, commenting on it or being frustrated with it or what's, what's the point of doing this? Mm-hmm. It's not what I want to do. Mm-hmm. And all of that comes into play and it's a downer. You know? It's not joyful. It takes the edge off the vibrancy of being alive. And what makes... And the other comment to make about it too is its endlessness. You know, we, we do... It's like, we do the same thing each day, you know, with some variation on the weekends and so on, you know. Over life, you get up in the morning, dawn, and you go to work and come back and sleep and you do the same thing over again. And, and if we're caught in the self-centred dream, there's a tendency to think, geez, it's boring. No? But it misses the point entirely. Mm-hmm. It's like this little commentary up there all the time. So you should be doing something else. So I did this yesterday. It, it, that's, that's, the, that's the spanner in the works right? that takes the edge off our joy of just being alive. Um, one aspect of um, modern psychology that's coming to the fore too, along with mindfulness, is people recognising the importance of the experience of flow in our life. So the flow of consciousness, the flow of action. And that when we're in the flow of activity, um, we're just engaged with it seamlessly. There seem, it does seems to bring a sense of fulfilment. Um, there's not dissatisfaction. There's not room for dissatisfaction. We're just engaged and at one with what we're doing and it seems to just happen seamlessly. So when we're caught in this self-centred dream with all that neurotic looping obsession and so on and commentary, um, we're not in the flow. It's very, very clunky and, and disjointed and we're disconnected from our life experience or we're, we're blocked. At the end of the day, um, as I was alluding to yesterday, um, our body and our unconscious mind, you know, that's connected to our body, really mainly runs the show and it knows what to do. Luckily we don't have to think about how our heart beats or how our lungs breathe or how our stomachs digest the food or how we hear. It all just happens without us having to think it out. So our conscious mind that we often identify with is just a a very minor player in the whole experience of what we are as a biological conscious human being. Mm -hmm. And um, we need to be reminded of that because uh, it's the conscious mind 
if it doesn't know its place, starts to interfere in all of that. Mm -hmm. And you may have had an experience of that around breathing, particularly when you're a, a beginner meditator. I did for a lot, for quite a while in Japan until I got the hang of it. But your body knows how to breathe. It knew how to breathe before you started doing meditation or mindfulness. Been doing it all your life and you got by to that point, so it knew how to do it. And then, and then you're told to be aware of your breathing. And your conscious mind goes, yep, yeah, okay, well, I'll, I'll, tell, I'll tell my lungs what to do. You breathe like this. I'll control the show. Mm -hmm. I'm the boss here. And then it gets in the way and it interferes. And then you, you, the flow of your breathing is all kind of disrupted. And um, what we learn over time is trust the body, trust the unconscious. It knows what it's doing. It knows how to breathe. The conscious mind just turns up to be aware of it. Mm -hmm. It's not the driver, it's the passenger. Mm -hmm. And when I go back to that, that lovely simple definition of Thich Nhat Hanh that I mentioned yesterday, he says, mindfulness is keeping one's consciousness alive to present reality. We could perhaps add one little more word in there. Um, Mindfulness is keeping one's consciousness alive to the flow of present reality. Mm -hmm. But that's its job description. No more than that. Mm -hmm. That's all it's got to do, is keep itself alive to present moment experience. It's not the boss. It doesn't run the show. Mm -hmm. It doesn't tell all the other parts what to do. It just shows up. Mm -hmm. And because if it doesn't show up, then the neurotic mind takes over. You know, the, what we referred to as the default mind, the one that just wants to worry and go around in loops and analyse and plan, etc. That one takes over. So its job is just to stay aware of the process of passing moment by moment experience. I was using that analogy yesterday of the, the Queen Bee in the hive, the queen, queen bee's just got her job to do and all the, all the other bees have got their job to do. And they know what to do. They're being programmed through their biology to know what decisions they've got to make and where they go. It's not as though there's a queen bee in there actually telling everyone what to do and micromanaging the situation. Nature just knows what to do. So our our, our conscious mind might be like the the tip of the iceberg that we see, you know, and there's the unconscious mind underneath. But it's just got its own job to do. It's not there to, to interfere. And this is spoken about a lot when you look at some of the, the Zen writings and Zen teachings. I remember in um, the Maui Zendo where I practiced with Robert Aitken, there was a uh, saying on the wall, I think it was from Yasutani Roshi, says something like, whatever you do, don't put another head on top of your own. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You get what I mean? It's like, it's that, that ego consciousness taking over, you know, thinking it's the boss running the show when it doesn't have to. If you look at it in, in classical um, 
Buddhist terms, you know, one of the um, one of the uh, uh, spokes of the, um, the the eightfold path is um, right effort. So, right effort is about bringing some effort to mindfulness, but not too much effort. And the Buddha used that lovely analogy of the um, the lute or the guitar or the violin that's that's not tuned too tightly and it's not tuned too loosely. It's kind of just right there in the middle. And that's the place we need to get to with our practice, that we, we're, we're turning up to be present, which is kind of right mindfulness, but we're not, we're not tensing up and pushing so much that we're, we're driving, trying to drive the experience. Mm-hmm. Kind of like we just have to turn up to be a passenger in the vehicle. The present moment will take us along wherever it wants to take us. And there is a tendency, I think, in um, when we're anxious, um, when we're over-intellectual, over-educated, that we think that this little conscious ego up here, he, he is or she is the one that will take control and run the show. And it creates so many difficulties in all of our lives. So, one of the things I'd like to say in conclusion, yes, keep consciousness alive to the present moment. Trust your unconscious. Trust your body. Trust that in action, that your legs know what to do, arms know what to do, your ears know what to do, your eyes need what to do. You just need to let the body do what it needs to do and follow it. And then there'll be a flow to everyday experience and there, is, and there is a joy that comes with everyday experience. When we sit, you know, and we, we have this focus on stillness and quietness here for a whole week, it's just, it gives us an opportunity to really see how that grasping, avoiding um, mind or the one that goes into apathy, you just get a very clear idea of how it's controlling the show. Mm-hmm. And, and then it, we drop below the surface of it and we realise it doesn't need to run the show. Everything just knows what to do in unison. And that's where we experience the flow of everyday life, the joy of everyday life. I mean, it's true. We call our school the Ordinary Minds in School. It's true. It's just, it's just turning up to the actions and the tasks and the goals and the the random events and the random conversations of everyday life and you just engage with it and it's enough. It doesn't have to be anything fancier than that to lead, to lead a, a fulfilling life. In conclusion, I remember, um, some of you may be old enough to remember D.T. Suzuki who was the, um, the uh, Japanese um, Zen scholar who perhaps more than anyone else, um, brought uh, Zen to the West in a way that was comprehensible for people to understand. He was um, affectionately known by those who knew him as the mindless scholar. Mm -hmm. Not the mindful scholar. The mindless scholar. The scholar who has no mind. 
in other words, who doesn't have this overinflated, self-important conscious ego that thinks runs everything, no head on top of his own, mm -hmm. just the one body-mind engaged in everyday activity.